X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. It's March 26, 2020. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. And coming up on your daily local podcast, today's headlines, a deeper dive on the impact of COVID-19 on local elections, and an interview with Portland mayoral candidate Sarah Iannarone. You got to listen to a lot of people. And it's not just listening to a lot of people. There's some analysis that goes on, right? What are the unifiers? What brings us together? What's going to be this vision for Portland that we can share? Because we're a very divided city right now. And first up, it's time for today's Quick Six Local Rundown. Yesterday, local chef Andy Richter posted that his Pac-Bac restaurants will close for now. Richter wrote, I simply cannot bear the thought of one of our team becoming ill for the sake of preparing some chicken wings. Last year, WalletHub, something on the Internet, rated Portland as America's best food city. U.S. News ranked as number nine. Richter is one of the folks who helped put Portland on the foodie map. Meanwhile, Ben's Deschutes Brewery has announced the layoff of 300 employees in Daimler, North America, has decided to close its Swan Island plant until April 6th, the first manufacturing business to close locally. Their reason? It's not just protecting workers. It's also challenges with the supply chain. They're projecting a hard time getting some of the stuff they need to make their stuff. Closures are painful for the staff, for the community. Where can we find relief? What do you have for us, Portland? Well, the feds are wrangling over exactly what lucky and unlucky souls, along with whatever soulful or soulless entities are going to receive checks from a $2 trillion proposed congressional package. City Council on Wednesday directed $3 million, that's roughly 300 million pennies, to go from reserves to coronavirus response. $1 million will be distributed to small businesses. The remaining $2 million will be decided upon soon. Coming on Monday, businesses can start applying for up to $10,000 grants. Women and people of color-owned businesses will be prioritized. More information can be found at Prosper Portland's website. That used to be called the Portland Development Commission. The name was changed to reflect, or at least project, an increased focus on developing communities beyond prospering developers. Wyden Kennedy wants to get us to listen. The firm known for the slogan, Just Do It, is now going to inspire us to stay home. Local firm Wyden Kennedy has been tasked by Oregon's governor to create a campaign to inform and inspire us all to stay at a distance. Offered at no cost, the campaign will launch soon. What's your suggestion? She stays home with her own wings. Oregon is for sleepers. Things look different here. See them on your screen and stay the home. Oregon, the beaver state. You know what beavers do? They use admirable ingenuity and ability to build impressive structures from on-site natural material. And then they stay the home. Or our Latin slogan, alis volat propiis, roughly translating to wash your hands. Let's see what Wyden Kennedy comes up with. Oregon's official motto, she flies with her own wings, was adopted in 1987. It was actually written 133 years earlier in 1854 by Judge Jesse Quinn Thornton and was put on the territorial seal. From 1957 to 1987, the state slogan was Oregon, the Union. For all of our troubled legacy, at least for 30 years, we took a whack at the Confederacy. A St. Helens movie theater had cars lined up around the block. People violating the stay-at-home order? Nope. The Columbia Theater in nearby St. Helens closed March 17th due to the pandemic, but they still have people lining up. Residents lined their cars around the block to buy gift cards and popcorn to go, according to the St. Helens Chronicle. After a story in the St. Helens Chronicle, shout out to local papers like the St. Helens Chronicle. 
Local organizations don't have the giant cash reserves of multinational corporations, nor the ear of Mitch McConnell. So local places like the Columbia Theater or the Hollywood Theater, Mississippi Studios, are offering tickets and gift cards. Meanwhile, X-Ray FM's fund drive starts soon. Hint, hint. In our series of candidate interviews, there's one candidate for mayor we won't have a chance to interview, Piper Kroll. The Nike executive and former Pandora lobbyist dropped out of the race on Wednesday. Her campaign got a late start and had a hard time garnering attention in the coronavirus media maelstrom. There's new data on COVID-19 in Oregon. Oregon now has 57 new cases of COVID-19, bringing the total to 266 recorded diagnoses, and the Oregon death toll has reached 10. Wednesday's report from the Oregon Health Authority included more detailed information due to journalist pressure. The state announced that it still has available 394 intensive care beds, 2,028 non-ICU beds, and 608 ventilators. The ventilators, you're hearing a lot about them. They're important because what ends up being the cause of death for a lot of COVID-19 patients is inability to breathe on their own. According to the Oregonian, one in 20 hospitalizations now are coronavirus-related. Governor Brown does anticipate at least $1.2 billion in aid for Oregonians from the federal aid bill. Governor Brown says she expects an additional 1,000 coronavirus tests per day soon, which could give a much clearer picture of the state of the outbreak in Oregon. Meanwhile, Willamette Week is reporting that it was Ted Wheeler who galvanized the effort to push Kate Brown to issue the statewide stay-at-home order. OHA posts data updates each day at healthoregon.org slash coronavirus. Also, a shout-out to Diane Lund and the Lund Report for consistently excellent health care coverage in Oregon. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. Stay tuned for Emily Gilliland's deeper dive on how the pandemic is impacting local elections. Thanks, Jefferson. Headlines have been littered with states moving their primary dates, but in Oregon... Secretary of State Bev Clarno announced last week that Oregon will forge ahead as planned on May 19th. It's easier and there's there's higher equitable engagement when you vote by mail. In a time of social distancing, Oregon's vote by mail process is now an enviable strategy. Oregon U.S. Senator Ron Wyden has proposed national vote by mail. He was the first U.S. Senator elected in an all vote by mail election. That proposal was a key component of the Democrats' coronavirus stimulus package, but in the final hours, funding was reduced, preventing a national rollout. How did Oregon get ahead of other states on vote-by-mail? Back in 1981, the state legislature authorized counties to allow votes cast by mail. But the big push came in 1995, when we passed the first vote-by-mail option, leaving it up to the counties. In 1995, we were the first state in the country to utilize all vote-by-mail for a federal primary. And in 1998, after a ballot initiative, Oregon became the first state to become fully vote-by-mail. In 2019, we got rid of that 50-cent poll tax, and Oregon became the first state to have prepaid postage on mail-in ballots. Meanwhile, local candidates are needing to figure out how to be creative without in-person house parties or being able to go door to door. What do you do when all the media coverage is about the global pandemic? Here are examples of how candidates are moving forward. Lori Wimmer, candidate for State House District 36. I had to suspend all field activities that involve human contact 
cancel all events and fundraisers, you know, all of those things that one must do because far more important than whether I win or lose, whether or not we come out of this with maximum number of people being healthy and safe. And Tara Hurst, who's running for Portland City Council, position two. We um, are trying to find ways to connect with community that are not your traditional ways. um, And maybe that's not a bad thing. And also just keeping a focus on what's important. And that's, you know, making sure that we all come out of this um, better, if, if that's possible. And I think it is. So it's, it's a weird time. It's a hard time. Chris Smith, candidate for Metro District 5, is thinking about digital organizing. We're working, uh, particularly now at the time of the virus, doing a lot of social media, you know, working my personal network through things like house parties that are moving online now. So they're, you know, they're Zoom parties rather than house parties. So, yeah, it's kind of the traditional means, but think about remapping them online. Social media is going to be really crucial for us, I think. And for a statewide race, Secretary of State candidate Shamia Fagan was always thinking about online opportunities including launching her own podcast to connect with voters. Here's Shamia. Now that we're in this new reality, we're actually now ahead of our other opponents in terms of how we expected to run this campaign. You know, I always expected to run a very digital campaign while getting out and meeting people in person was absolutely something we hoped to do. Barnstorming all 36 counties of Oregon, we had planned a big, actually for starting this coming Monday, I have my kids on spring break this year. We were going to go barnstorm Oregon in an RV that was already planned. We were already making a big itinerary. That, of course, has been canceled because of the, the pandemic. But we were already planning to run an incredibly digital campaign because I've done that as a legislator. The reality is even if folks, you know, even if 50 folks can come out and meet you at a town hall, that might be in a town of 600 people or that might be in a county of several tens of thousands of people. So we always had to find ways to reach people where they are. I was one of the first legislators um, when I first started that would do te- that would do um, town halls. We would call them digital town halls. And I remember one of the first responses I got back from that, we would just use platforms to basically have these digital town halls. And I remember a woman commenting and saying, I never get to go to these things because I have young kids and we're, you know, we're out doing stuff. It's just I am watching my daughter's volleyball game and I'm tuning in to you know, at that, that particular episode, I was with the Ways and Means Chair just describing the education budget. So you can never get to participate in these things. And now I get to. Thank you. So, you know, as you know, we launched, I launched a podcast last year with a colleague from Southern Oregon, Jeff Golden, called Capitalizing. We would, we would bring that information to voters every week. Basic stuff we were doing in the Capitol. I'm kind of famous for doing these silly Facebook Live videos while I drive to Salem, of course, with a hands-free of uh, my phone, you know, stuck on a hands-free device, just explaining the basic legislative process, saying, hey, folks, here's the work session deadline. Here's what that means and breaking it down for people. So we were already planning to do that in this campaign. So we were already essentially building those platforms that now are going to be the only way that we reach voters are things like teletown halls and webinars. We've already started doing videos and interviews with people that are they have good information for people for different angles during the COVID-19 crisis. We had a divorce lawyer on the other day talking about folks who are divorced and co-parenting during this. And what does that mean? And what are the tips? We have a mental health therapist coming on later. We have Teresa Alonzo Leon, representative from Woodburn area, who's going to talk about resources for undocumented families. And so we were already planning to do that. In fact, long before we knew the way that COVID-19 was going to change our campaign, we had already begun to launch a campaign podcast. We know Oregon's primary will continue because of this groundbreaking decision that, that we made to vote by mail decades ago. 
As a reminder, Oregon's voter registration deadline is April 28th. Now we continue to Jefferson Smith's interview with Portland mayoral candidate Sarah Ayanarone. Sarah discusses her approach to campaigning and why community engagement makes her a better candidate. Today, we're going to hear from candidate Sarah Ayanarone, who is running for mayor of Portland a founder of Arletta Library Bakery Cafe, faculty at the Wayfinding Academy, and a founding staff member of First Stop Portland at PSU. Sarah, welcome. Hi, Jefferson. Happy election season. Who are you? Why are you running? Well, as you said, my name's Sarah Ianron, and you're one of the few people who said it right on the first try, so thank you very much for that. I don't know if it was the first try. It was the first try today. <laughs> first try today. Well, hey, that's pretty good. I think I might have had it on the first try even long ago, but anyway, go ahead. Yeah, you are good. Um You know, I'm a mom. I'm a community leader. I've owned a successful business in town. I'm an educator. I'm an urban planning and policy wonk. My job for the last 10 years at Portland State University was hosting civic leaders from around the world who came to study um, why is Portland a good place to live, or at least why do you have that reputation? And in that time, I had the good fortune of engaging with a lot of people who asked me hard questions, both from here and abroad. What's working? What's not in Portland? And over the past decade, what we've seen is a lot of talk about Portland being a good place to live, but not a lot of rubber hitting the road in terms of realizing some of our more progressive values. So are we screwing up most? Equity and equitable prosperity and shared prosperity and making sure that as we make investments for a more sustainable future, that that is not accruing to just a small swath of Portlanders, but that that's more equitably where is the mayor screwing up in equity priorities? I don't Unless know. you're saying he's doing a great job. And if you are, then my question is, why are you running? Is it about priorities or is it about outcomes? I don't know that in terms of priority alignment and outcomes is where we're seeing the gains, right? It's about how do your budgets align with your priorities, where are your expenditures? So you're, you're saying you're not sure if it's a priority problem or an outcome problem? He, I'm saying that he says it's a priority, but when you look at outcomes, I don't see there being a difference made. So we have to hold our elected officials accountable when we think we should be making progress in areas that we're not, or we're talking about things, but we're not realizing them. Vision Zero is a perfect example, right? We keep talking about People not dying on the streets. Exactly. People not dying in the streets. The goal of a policy like Vision Zero is to reduce traffic deaths ultimately to zero is the model. And you do that through strategic infrastructure and investments, education, uh, transportation, um, uh, enforcement, traffic enforcement. And we actually saw the highest number of deaths on Portland streets last year than we've seen in a long time. So if we're doubling down, I think it's a combination. When you look at the number of people moving here and you look at the amount of people who commute by the various modes, whether it's transit or bicycle or walking or driving, you look at the number of people commuting, the rates of people commuting by those active transportation modes, they're relatively flat. flat. So most of the people who are moving here are staying in their cars. So the roads are congested. I don't know that people who are new to Portland understand the rules of, say, pedestrian priority. We're seeing an influx of big automobiles, SUVs, are increasing pedestrian deaths around the country. And we're not addressing that head on. And so this is a place where you see a disconnect, right, between traffic safety and outcomes. So what should the mayor have done or what would you as mayor do that you fear that Ted Wheeler won't do if given a second term? I don't feel 
like the current mayor puts our money where our mouth is. A good example being homelessness. Well, right. I want to stick. I want to stick oh, on traffic stick on deaths. Traffic. Right? You're saying, well, more more people are dying in cars. Some would argue that that is the fault of the people in cars who are getting killed. Some would argue that was some systemic challenge. Others people might argue it's some combination. What's the mayor doing wrong, or what would you do right to address that? Well, I wouldn't. I wouldn't make Vision Zero a policy priority that I trot out when it's convenient, and then not put any investments or energy behind it. That's the point. When you ask me for an example of where yeah, I no, see it's a, a good example. It's, I think it's fascinating. Um, and so, what you have to do if you're going to say that you care about something like Vision Zero, do you care about it? I do care deeply. So then, about what it. should we do about it? I think that we should align the transportation budget with it. Right now, when you look at how the transportation budget um, plays out in reality. A good portion of the investments don't go toward Vision Zero. A lot yeah. of things. What are we spending on that we shouldn't be spending on? I don't know that it's what we shouldn't be spending on. It's not on polite that. to say, but that's the deal, right? Either it's going to be more money or you're going to be changing from something to something else. Well, there are also places where we could be um, collecting money that we don't collect. We give away we give away an awful lot of free parking in this city. Okay. Right. The automobiles still, whether it's the storage of the personal automobile in the public right of way, many people who own single family homes and neighborhoods across the city believe that they're entitled to the asphalt on the other side of yeah. the curb in their house. Oh, yeah. No, the sidewalk in front of your house. That's my sidewalk. <laughs> yeah. That's my street. Yeah. I can't park my car there. If somebody, and I will say, I felt it. If somebody parks their car in front of my house, that's all right. But if somebody parks their car in front of my house, like a bunch of days in a row, I'm like, hey, wait a minute. That's my house. I'm supposed to be able to park there. And so you have to ask yourself, if we're talking about climate action and you look at one of the fastest growing um, sources of emission when we're actually supposed to be reducing greenhouse gas emissions and they're on the rise is from transportation. So we're basically – So you want a toll? You want to, you, want to put a, you want to put a parking meter on residential streets around Portland? I think that we have to evaluate what are the trade-offs that we're making by allocating so much of our city area to asphalt and private – Automobiles. I, I hear that. And I still want to answer. I, I still am curious about your thoughts. Does that mean that we put a meter or some other way to charge, put in some little internal car GPS monitor to charge people for parking too long in front of their own house or in front of, on a residential street? No, but there are districts where you could actually have yeah. – we're working on district pricing. We have something called transportation demand management that could be more widely applied around the city. There's something where you think about affordable housing and how much parking we have to potentially supply where we're trying to build housing. And if we're thinking about, well, what are the trade-offs when you think about the things that we need in urban space, right? We want to use the land to build housing on. We need to use some of that space to plant trees. When you think about the fact that we're facing a climate crisis and urban tree canopy is one of the most effective, efficient mechanisms for making sure that our people are cool in the summer. It helps us with stormwater management. It helps us ameliorate um, things like urban heat island impacts so that we can... I learned ameliorate when I was prepping for this, AT. Keep going. <laughs> um urban heat island impacts. If we maybe didn't have to have all of this parking in the street, could that be planted with trees? I have this policy that I put forth in my Green New Deal called um, curbside canopy, right? Do we really want it? What, what, what do we want to do? Store private automobiles or plant trees? These are, these are things that happen in the public right of way, not even on the private property. And so does that mean that the property owner could pull that, that building that they're building for housing? further out. I, these are the trade-offs that I think that we need to be talking about, right? What, and you what? don't think the mayor is going to be talking about those trade-offs? I don't think he takes bold action on making them happen. When we when we look at... How come? 
I mean, maybe that's asking you to be his, his armchair psycho- psychologist. Maybe that's not fair. But how come you think he doesn't? I don't know that the incumbent listens to the same people that I listen to on a day-to-day basis. Who does he listen to? Who do you listen to? I believe that he listens to the people in the PBA. He probably listens to his neighbors in the West Hills. He probably listens to people in City Hall that he passes by day-to-day. He certainly doesn't come out to my neighborhood or hang out with my neighbors at the Portland Mercado on a day-to-day basis. He's not trying to ride the bus on 82nd Avenue. He's not trying to live car-free out in East Portland and figure out how he's going to get to work. It's tricky. It doesn't work for Portlanders right now. It's real tricky. (laughs) No, I mean, this is one of my my least favorite, I was going to say favorite talking points, but it's the thing that bums me out, is normally if you have more children and more seniors and more people below like median income levels, you would predict higher use. All those factors would would indicate higher use of public transit. We see lower public transit east of 82nd Avenue, east of Mount Tabor, but it's not particularly surprising because we're, you know, what bike lanes are you using? Where are you going to walk to? Right? Are you going to go over to Home Depot and put a fridge on your back and bike it across in your bicycle? it's not even that. I mean, as someone who resided car-free in East Portland and was happy to ride my bike, I lived there for three months before I stopped riding my bike, right? We haven't made it even safe enough that, you know, automobiles on those strodes, as we call them, which are these wide roads that are almost like freeways across East Portland. Strodes? I didn't even know this word. You didn't even know this word? I didn't even know the word strode. Oh my goodness. Now you know a new word. You knew ameliorate, but now you know strode. No, because it wasn't on any test that I had to study for. I don't know. I was supposed to read things and learn that way. What's a strode? Is a wide street? It's one of those like when you fast? think about Stark at like 148th or 122nd in division. No, Gleason, Halsey, Stark, they're Burnside, all they're all there. pretty much roads. And especially if it's not congested, right? Yeah. In some ways, this is where – so these automobiles are going through at 50. Like these are freeways. Well, we've also concentrated most of the affordable and multifamily housing there, especially naturally yeah. occurring affordable housing there. So you have – these are people's neighborhood streets. And someone who lives at maybe 23rd and Clinton, right? versus someone who lives at 123rd and Division, that's both their residential street, but we treat those completely separately. And we give we apply different policy priorities. Well, we have more people living out in East Portland day after day, and they are transit dependent, and they are walking. So why aren't the investments in safety concentrated there and saying, how can we make sure this elderly person living at 136th and Gleason can get to their healthcare provider or... Yeah. No, some of the drives my dad nuts is uh, is they obviously spent a bunch of money, spent a bunch of time creating some, I don't know, little island thing on the corner of uh, the intersection of 21st and Tillamook, and the uh, and he, and which is where I grew up, is the family home. And he's like, we don't need that, but is but I'm proud of him because his frustration is they should be spending that money, you know, a place where people are dying from getting run by over by a car, and I don't think that's here. And that's exactly it. And so even this year on the budget committee, what we did when I'm on the PBOT budget advisory committee, we actually made them put an overlay of the traffic deaths this year, those 50 traffic deaths on the map of the investments to look and say, if we were spending money to address this, if those had been 50 gun deaths, think about how we would be deploying the Portland police differently. If those had been 50 children who had died on playgrounds how would the Parks Department be behaving differently? Why do we accept these deaths? And I mean, it is, you have to look at it by the numbers in those ways and then try to solve for X. And I don't think talking about Vision Zero versus, wow, look at how many of those deaths last year were even in East Portland. And what's the likelihood that you'll be involved in a traffic death? In it was East most Portland? of them. Yeah. 
a good number. And then along, I, well, I think it's usually the last time I've seen maps. It's not just a good number. It's most. It's, most. it's like it's, it's a, even though it's not a majority of the city, it's not a majority of the population, not a majority of the geography. It is a majority of the traffic deaths. Although I haven't seen the data for last year. And we have to think about it too. I use a term that I would actually like to see more widely used, which is actually called the crescent of disinvestment, because. It's easy and convenient for us to think of this hard line of wherever people have it. I like that. That's good because that includes like Lombard and then also gets North Portland. I think it goes all the way around the Columbia Slough up into – it's moving further and further east. The crescent of disinvestment almost rhymes. I'm good at this. You see, this is why you should vote for me. Not only is she policy brilliance, but this is my freestyling right here, policy freestyle, crescent of disinvestment. Um, But you go all the way around the Columbia Slough. We may take that clip out and repeat it over and over again, but go on. (laughs) You can do that. You have it for the archives. Um, You go out the Columbia Slough, probably 82nd Avenue, but maybe 122nd. And then, but then you have to think down where my folks live here in Brentwood, Darlington, which has the nickname, you know, Felony Flats or Methlehem, where there's also no sidewalks, right? And that goes almost down to like the 40s, right? We're not even talking 140th. We're talking like 40th. And um, it's the county line really with Clackamas. And then you've got places like 82nd Avenue where in some places you've got a Fred Meyer on the corner and then 100. Do you have a map that shows it? The Crescent of Disinvestment? Yeah. In my head. <laughs> you want me to draw it out? Or I mean, not, you know, we could hold it up close to the mic. I don't know if that'd help anybody, but it might actually be useful. To I would find it interesting to see a map, and particularly if there was any, you know, if there's any data that backed it up, right? Is any, oh, this is where we've seen more traffic traffic deaths. And I and the reason I say I started getting into maps as an East Portlander, because I started looking at a bunch of maps. And one of the maps I looked at was, in fact, traffic deaths. Mm-hmm. It was one of the things that, Got me into this mess when I got when I got sort of ticked off. I was, I was a happier person as a younger person. I got sort of ticked off. Optimism. And, and it really was. It really was looking at traffic deaths because I looked at a map of the traffic deaths in Portland. And, and I went to this transportation forum and I went and I said, oh, what are these stickers? And he said, oh, those are the traffic deaths. And I counted the stickers. And I think I counted 32 stickers and 21 of them, I think, were East 52nd Avenue. Mm-hmm. And that was, or including 82nd Avenue, so 82nd Avenue and East. And that's not where two-thirds of the people live. That's not even where two-thirds of the cars are. Right. And and I got kind of ticked off. And then I looked at another map. And that map was where uh, big donors lived. And I looked at the, I think it was Fundraise was the was the website. And you could see who had given federally $1,000 or more to a presidential candidate. Right. And I looked at that map. And you know how many little stickers were there? I think two. Yeah, East yeah. 52nd Avenue who'd given four digits. And probably in Glenfair, right? somewhere and, and by I, the golf course. And I think and I think zero I think zero were to John Kerry or Barack Obama. And you map that to like where people listen to power, and that's where I think your point of like, oh, he's not hanging out with me near the Mercado. Uh, does it matter, or maybe why does it matter that Ted Wheeler is accepting five and ten thousand dollar contributions, or why does it matter that you're running with public financing? Hey, well, you have to ask yourself why he thinks it's important that he needs to have those first of all. And when we talk about those traffic, saves deaths, time. His argument, I think, would be it saves time. Instead of going, you know, person by person, I can I can go out. I will say a good friend of mine who is in the legislature, whose politics I share in many respects, said, you know, one of the reasons I like big contributions, if I get a ten thousand dollar contribution, that saves me a hundred conversations that where I'm asking for a hundred dollars and allows me to do policy work, reach out when I'm not asking for money, et cetera. What it allows you to do is bad policy work. I mean, that's where the disconnect with Wheeler is. He's not – I don't see those hundreds of conversations. For us, we're at like 1,700, 1,800 donors right now. Those folks come and they talk to me via email, via social media. They come to our events. I learn from them. That's not a burden. That's a benefit. That's going to make me a better mayor. So 
how do you connect this conversation about transportation priorities, et cetera, to the conversation we we're having just prior to that about money and politics? So let's say you're running for president, just hypothetically. Oh, good Lord. And, and, <laughs> and what you've done with your life, what you've done with your life is you, were, you did work in the finance industry and you got fired from that. And then you figured out that if you built terminals that gave investors what they needed and gave just, just lots of data terminals, you sold those terminals to everybody on Wall Street, that you eventually could build a news organization and eventually you could be a billionaire. And you wouldn't need a bunch of organizational endorsements. You could just, I don't know, spend $500 million trying to win the Democratic primary for the presidency. And you know what you could do with that is you could buy enough ads so that you could, in fact, get into the teens even without participating in the first two primaries or having yet sat in the debate stage. Just hypothetically, let's imagine that's how you would spend your life. Or let's imagine just hypothetically that you were collecting five and $10,000 checks and you were then able to air the kind of ads, make them beautiful. You don't have to say a lot of stuff, but you can say it a lot of times. And then all of a sudden, everybody knows Sarah I on her own. Everybody's pronouncing it right on the first try. And everybody's got you in the tip of their tongue. And you're able to pay for the kind of campaign that can win. How do you, I want to ask in our second segment, we're going to divide this thing up. How do you actually win the race like that? But connect the dots between how do you manage the power and politics and how that's connected to how you are running for office or how somebody else is running for office? And this is great. I'm actually glad you asked this question because I just taped the podcast um, today for my own podcast. Good plug. Yeah, well, podcast, but I did just come from it. Um, on It was called, the title of this week's podcast was called Winning Honest Elections. And I interviewed my new field director, Russell Lum, on this because to talk about how do we use this um, grassroots community organizing model as a way not only to win an election, but to build the social movement that we need to regain our capacity as Portlanders to shape our future based on the needs of the many rather than the few. For me, part of what we're trying to do through this campaign cycle is the fact that we do have so many donors that we need to engage, but we've met that at this point. For us, it's not about raising more money now. We have enough money to execute our plan and do what we need to do. Our reach right How much now, is that? We budgeted around 200000 to meet our goals, and we're continuing to raise so money. So that doesn't cost- include a TV buy, unless maybe one ad. Um, you know, we're raising money now. We'll probably get closer to three eighty by the time yeah. things are done. But and how much? But you're running public, right? We are running public. And so, how does that work? How, in ter- explain to people, remind people how it works. What you're allowed to do, what you're not allowed to do, and then what the taxpayer does, or what you know the city coffers do. So, what we had to do to qualify was you could take up to five thousand dollars in quote unquote startup money to get your campaign up and running. And then to qualify, what you had to do was get people to give you contributions of between. Uh, five and two hundred and fifty dollars um, for you to qualify for that election. I believe our number was five hundred donors. And then once you did that, then you had to file for office. And once you hit all these um, check boxes that you had to do in terms of making sure that you were registered and all your paperwork filed, the first fifty dollars that every Portlander gives you is eligible for a six to one match from a public fund. So what that means is for each fifty dollars that Portlanders give me, the campaign actually sees three hundred and fifty dollars. If you give me above fifty dollars, that just comes to us as straight money. It's not eligible for the match. But so what we did was we built a campaign around trying to reach as many Portlanders as we could to say, could you give me up to fifty dollars? Could you give me that first fifty dollars? And we've reached like I said, we're going to close in on 2,000 donors probably by the end of the month. We're continuing to go to each person, and what we're getting them to do is buy in 
to this vision of Portland's future as being crafted again by the people of Portland and not major donors. Because you think about when you ran for mayor and how much money you had to raise. It's painful thinking about how much money you had to raise and what time that takes and how much energy you have to spend and the trade-offs you even need to make for that. My conversation with people who are used to writing five and $10,000 checks is, hey, man, I don't need your money. I don't need it. Keep it. Let's have a frank conversation now about how you want to come to the table with your $250 check with my next door neighbor who's a school teacher who also wrote me a $250 check. What's the co-creation of those solutions going to look like when that power what impact is that having you as a candidate? You've sort of answered that question already, but anything more you'd want to say on the impact that's having you uh, on you as a candidate, the kind of mayor you think you might then be, or the impact it's having on the way the campaign conceives of itself? It's everything. It's infused. I mean, first of all, we built the campaign around this, knowing that this model was going to be there. So the people who've been working on honest elections are on my campaign. The people who are working on the open and accountable elections program are on my campaign, who were informing me for day one. There are these elections reforms coming down the pike. Should you choose to run, this would be a strategy. So we built it from day one around reaching as many voters as possible for small contributions. That changes your strategy around your messaging. It changes what you say to people. It changes how you engage in the world. It means I can have a coffee where no one can write me a check, and it still matters. Are you surprised that Ted didn't run public? No. I mean, he's in a no-win situation on that one, right? Why why no-win? Because he wouldn't be able to get enough people. Because my my thought was this, okay? And I even suggested, and and in a matter of disclosure, like I've worked on a bunch of campaign finance reform stuff, Mm -hmm. right, up to this very day, including the honest election stuff, right? I've convened the early meetings for it. And and I so I can't be trusted on this issue, or I can if you agree with me. But the... Uh, but I, my idea, and to, tr- to pass the statewide initiative, the statewide uh, constitutional initiative, was that Ted should give all of his money, not be all of it, but all the money of his campaign coffers to the campaign for campaign finance reform, announce then he's running public, take all of your lines that, hey, we've got to make sure that government is responsive to the people, how we run for office is inextricably linked to how we govern, right? And then just, you know, it, it just win easily. And that's what I thought. I honestly thought that's what he should do. Uh, Why? Maybe I'm wrong. It just wouldn't have worked. But why do you think that wouldn't have worked for him? Well, you have to get buy-in for your message from such a wide swath of people. And to do that, you have to co-create that message with them. And you have to be very finely tuned to their values and what they care about. You got to listen to a lot of people. You got to listen to a lot of people. And it's not just listening to a lot of people. There's some analysis that goes on, right? What are the unifiers? What brings us together? What's going to be this vision for Portland that we can share? Because we're a very divided city right now. Um, we're divided geographically, we're divided economically, we're divided racially, we're divided on a policy lens, we're divided at the neighborhood level. And we have forgotten that part of being a good uh, democracy is us being able to discuss and disagree, but that we're going to come together to solve problems. And I think that more people make that better. I don't know that the current mayor trusts community to improve outcomes. Because the way that he's used to doing things is from this top-down model, right? So often he gets pushback when he puts something out into the community and they blow back on him. And he wonders why. Well, it's because when you try to do something apart from the community, they're not, they don't have buy-in because they haven't been there from day one. Two, it may not be the best crafted 
policy because you haven't listened to enough people to work out the kinks. Like you haven't beta tested and beta tested and beta tested your software. And now when you've got something, he's very resistant to even feedback at that level. So when you've got something that's rough and flawed, rather than being open and receptive and saying, I'm going to look at that and I'll take your feedback into consideration and we'll modify this. He's like, oh, you're right and you're wrong and I'm right, right? Obviously, this is good policy. And people who do things in community are much better at collaboration because we've had to learn to work together to get things done for a very long time. We're talking to Sarah Anarone, candidate for Portland mayor. You can find this interview and more at X-Ray's candidate interview series, Vision 2020. It's available at xraypod.com and on other podcast platforms. This is The Local, your daily local news podcast, your hometown in 30 minutes. Today's resources and ways to contribute will be shared in the show notes. And we'd love to hear how you are staying connected. Send us an email at info at xray.fm or tweet us at xrayfm. We'll be back tomorrow with more news from Portland and beyond.